the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And it's that time of year again, everybody. It's time for Halloween. So in our first spooky selection, we're going to 1981. And on the other side of Mitch Bain's spooky Halloween music, we will be covering John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. Last Halloween we covered witches, this Halloween we're covering wolves. We start off with an acknowledged classic of the genre. Is it a classic now though? We're heading back to 1981 for John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. And if you're a horror fan you will have undoubtedly seen this movie but for those who might not have seen it I think this is a good gateway into horror because it combines the comedy with the horror and it was kind of one of the first movies to really do that as well so without further ado i'm just going to read a brief synopsis of an american werewolf in london which is on the back of the limited edition arrow video release from 2019. one of the greatest directors of the 1980s john landis expertly combines macabre horror with dark humor in the lycanthropic classic an american werewolf in london american tourist david david norton and jack griffin dunn are savaged by an unidentified vicious animal whilst hiking on the Yorkshire Moors. Side note, they're actually in Wales, but we'll get to that. David awakes in a London hospital to find his friend dead and his life in disarray. Retiring to the home of a beautiful nurse, Jenny Agatha, to recuperate, he soon experiences disturbing changes to his mind and body, undergoing a full moon transformation that will unleash terror on the streets of the capital. An American Werewolf in London had audiences howling with laughter and recoiling in terror upon its cinema release. Landis' film has gone on to become one of the most important horror films of its decade, rightly lauded for its masterful set pieces, uniquely unsettling atmosphere, and Rick Baker's truly groundbreaking Oscar-winning special makeup effects. Now newly restored and presented with an abundance of extra features, this big beast of horror can be devoured as never before. So I'm not sure if this is available anymore, but... That's what the synopsis is. And when I was researching for synopsis to read out, I thought, what better synopsis than this one from our video? Because I think it captures the movie perfectly. And it couldn't have 
said it better than probably either of us. This is still, in my opinion, one of the greatest horror films of all time. And it's definitely in my top five horror films of all time. I still love this film. Put it on last night. It had been a while, but it still gave me goosebumps. And I absolutely still love this film. I was first introduced to it when I was a young teenager. My mum actually put it on for me basically because I think she got to the point where she was accepting that I was becoming a horror fan and I was watching content that wasn't age appropriate so she was like let's watch one of my favorites an American Wolf in London and it's just one of those movies that's always bonded us as well so yeah this has been quite um, a long time that I really loved this film. Yeah it was one of my initial forays into horror in my horror viewing history and American Werewolf in London was one of the early ones that I saw and considering the sort of stuff that was around at the time, this stood pretty much head and shoulders above almost everything else that was out there at the time. Yes, there was a lot of fun stuff. Obviously, with the advent of video, there was a lot of really cheap, nasty knockoff stuff. That was pretty entertaining, but something that was actually made with a bit of money and with decent actors and a fairly big studio behind it as well. And... It was treated a lot better than most horror films of that era were because I think it had a little bit more kudos. I think the fact that they set it in Britain didn't hurt it either. I think horror movies set in Britain do tend to be looked upon with slightly more respect. You've got things like The Wicker Man. So anything that's got a UK setting, specifically a rural UK setting, which you get in the first act of the movie, I think it does lend itself to critics and viewers being a bit more kind. I don't know why. There's something about the UK that lends horror films a certain amount of cachet. It doesn't seem quite as in-your-face and brash as stuff that's set in America. It's clearly not as sleazy as stuff that you'd see from Italians. God bless them. I love Italian horror movies, but this seems to have a little bit more class about it. You're right about the opening bit. Yes, it is supposed to be Yorkshire. And we do get some Yorkshire accents and we do get some Yorkshire actors in there. But it is not Yorkshire. It is Wales. I mean, you can probably confuse the odd rural part of Yorkshire and Wales, but it clearly was not filmed in Yorkshire. The opening act is hilarious because it taps into all those Yorkshire stereotypes of people being wary of strangers, not wanting to talk about anything, just fed up of outsiders, anybody coming in. And if anybody does come to Yorkshire these days, we aren't like that. We're quite happy to take the piss out of our own stereotype, really. The fact is that you've got these two American tourists stumbling into rural Yorkshire. They come into the pub and everything stops. They're all having a good laugh. Dead silence. I guess that comes from kind of westerns as well, where you get the strangers coming in and then everything stops for them to look at the people who have just come into the saloon. So it plays into that kind of thing. It is quite fun, the first act. As a Yorkshireman, I can't get upset about the portrayal of Yorkshire in the first act because it's a comedy and they're taking the piss out of everything. To be perfectly honest, the Americans are not dealt a particularly good hand because at the start... David and Jack are talking about this girl that Jack is basically just trying to have a sexual conquest with. And they're presented as dicks, basically. They're just talking about the fact that Jack is on a one-man mission to sleep with this woman. 
And so you've kind of got a bit of sympathy with them when they're put in this predicament, but not a whole lot either, because part of me, when Jack gets attacked in the first act, after he's been going on about this Debbie Klein woman and showing her no respect whatsoever, when the wolf gets him, I was thinking, well, it kind of serves you right, Jack. <laughs> yeah, actually, that whole conversation didn't age well. It was quite misogynistic, and I was like, at that point thinking, oh no, am I going to fall out of love with this movie? Absolutely not. It's similar to how we discussed in Mrs. Doubtfire last year. Just some things are out of place now, but we just accept they're a product of the time. People just didn't know any better. People were ignorant. It really does knock some points down on these characters, that whole line of dialogue. But as the film progresses, you know, I still absolutely enjoyed it just the same. But I know what you mean, because they are, you know, quite cocky, but jerky with that whole thing. So you don't feel too bad for them, I suppose. I think because you've seen this movie so many times, you know what's coming. And it's the whole experience of seeing how David is going to transform. And of course, how even Jack transforms all well in a different way, let's just say. I mean, this film still absolutely holds up and it's an iconic piece of horror cinema. The practical effects in it, I mean, I know this is 1981 and I know we've been spoiled with CGI in the interim, but it still, to me, is just one of the most amazing transformation scenes I've ever seen in a werewolf movie. And I will say that in our first episode on werewolf movies, this is the one. This is the quintessential werewolf transformation scene because it's just two minutes of pure horror and pure amazement just seeing how this all happens this scene is so transfixing from the moment that he's writhing in pain you just feel the whole thing you're very much there with him when he's going through this so i think they've done an exceptional job and it never gets old that scene especially like once the snout comes through and you see that that's just yeah it's just iconic yeah that was the one thing that rick baker originally wanted more of because the snout transformation it's about seven seconds apparently and Rick Baker worked on it for absolutely ages and thought, I want to see more of that. However, when he went to see it with an audience and the audience applauded, Rick Baker realised that was just enough of that to see on screen. Apparently that scene was shot over the course of a week because they had to keep doing different setups and the makeup took forever. And basically they were just about doing one setup a day because of the long hours of getting David Norton into the costume and putting the effects on. So it was probably quite grueling for David Norton that week. I'm probably sure that it's not a great memory he has of the movie, even though having heard him talk about it, he's got a lot of fondness for the film. Definitely proves that prosthetics are better. I know that CGI has advanced a lot and I know that it can be very convincing and I know that digital effects are used sparingly to edit things out of backgrounds, which is great. But for something that, that's this big and this in your face, you need something that is practical. And I don't think CGI is ever going to replace really, really good physical effects. Here, you just can't believe what you're seeing. At the time, I was at a loss to how they'd actually done some of it. It was like, this is absolutely amazing. I don't know how they've managed to pull this off. Obviously, with the passing of time, and you get to see effects documentaries and you hear people talk. Yes, I know how they did it now. But if you're quite young and you're watching this, you're so blown away by what's on screen. You just don't stop to think 
how they could have managed to make all of this work. And you're right, it's two minutes of absolute terror. It's awful. But you can't tear your eyes from the screen as well. It's a it's a dreadful thing that's happening to him. And even the little bits of dark humour that they chuck in don't really pull you out of it. There's one point where he's looking at his hand extending. And it is quite amusing in one way, but it's really horrible in another way. So that's a highlight of the movie, definitely. And it takes quite a long time to get to. It kind of keeps you in suspense as to when it's going to happen. And it's about 55, 56 minutes into the movie. But there's lots and lots of other things to distract you in the time because the story has to roll along and David has to slowly come to terms with what he might be turning into. And of course, you've got Jack appearing as a steadily decomposing corpse over the course of the movie to give him advice about what he should do. The advice basically being, David, you should kill yourself before you transform into a wolf and start attacking people. There is a lot of dark comedy in this movie. And I think the reason that it works is it's never silly. I think the comedy works because it's never it's never laughing at itself. It's using the humour out of the situation. But it's never going too far. In a way, the fact that it does have humour in it makes the horrible stuff all the worse because you laugh in one moment and then something truly gross and dreadful is going to happen in the next scene, which really knocks you for six. And some of the dream sequences in it are just bonkers. When David is getting all these weird thoughts, you know, the Nazi werewolf sequence, where the hell did that come from? That's so bizarre. And it comes out of nowhere. You're not expecting this. And all of a sudden, you've got his family being invaded their home is being invaded by nazi werewolves machine gunning people where the hell does that come from yeah and i believe at the time because john landis was already an established director and everyone had an idea about what his kind of films would be like and i think a lot of people went into this not fully realizing that it was a horror movie and it really did take people back a bit I think it was criticised as well for the level of gore in it, but I believe there were actual cuts made to what we've got in the final version, so it was that bit gorier. I mean, I don't know whether I'm the right person to judge because I'm probably quite desensitised by now of that horror films that I have sat through in my life. Nothing really phases me, but I, I don't know whether someone coming into this new might be a little bit squeamish with this one. It's hard to say because it, it's, you know, it's dated effects. It's very much 80s gore and splatter i mean it does have some element of realism to it in terms of how bloody it is especially like the werewolf attack at the beginning i suppose but it's not quite realistic gore as well i don't think that this film is exactly what an 18 would be now it's like an old school 18 and i speak about this in quite a lot of our episodes when we're reflecting back yeah, there's quite a lot of gore in it. There's quite a lot of violence in it. But there's also places where it pulls away. There are some attacks that you don't see at all. You just see the wolf coming into shot, cut, next sequence. But there are some quite unpleasant bits. There's a bit in the cinema where there's a policeman shining a torch and he comes across a corpse and there's kind of guts spilling out. And even now I thought, yeah, that's that's quite unpleasant. But again... See, that was quite dark on my version. Yeah. <laughs> That was actually quite, I couldn't really see it as well, which is interesting. I don't know whether that's the restoration. You kind of knew what he was looking at, but it just, it wasn't that visible. 
it's very brief, I have to say. And I think, I guess, if you got the freeze frame on it, you'd probably think, yeah, that's quite gross. But again, it's part of the horror movie. I like stuff that's gross, as long as they're not rubbing your face in it for like 95 minutes, which this clearly isn't. Like um, Terrifier. Yeah. Yeah, stuff Today like that. Came you yes, exactly. Stuff like that where it's just trying to be gross for the sake of being gross. Stuff like Cannibal Ferox where it's just like, we've got no plot, really. Let's just rub people's noses in gross butchery for 90 minutes. That'll do. Some people like that. I'm less of a fan. I think there has to be something else there. I can't just sit through gore. Probably when I was a teen that I probably could have just sat through 90 minutes of gore and not been bothered at all. But now... There's got to be something else there. I don't mind the gore, but there has to be something else to sort of attach it to. If you're not a fan of attacks on deer either, there is a little bit of animal violence in it. You don't really see it, but there is a dream sequence where David is running through the forest and attacks a deer. And there's a quite gross but very brief bit where he's chowing down on the deer. The dog, there is a sequence with a dog and I thought, oh God, does the dog die here? I can't remember. The dog runs off. So the dog does not die in this movie. Everybody else in that sequence dies. The dog doesn't. Thank goodness for that. That is the main thing. doesn't matter about the human corpses piling up. It's the animals that matter. And then um, going back to that scene about the deer, there was a line of dialogue that got cut from that. It's something along the lines of, did they want to eat Bambi too? Or something like that. Is something like that he says in the hospital when he's explaining his horrific dream to Alex and this. So I feel with this film, again, it's just they've got the right cast, the right script, the right crew. Everything just falls into place with this. Like, I can't imagine this being done by anybody else. I just think this just hit gold, basically. And I spoke about that as well with Doubtfire last time. And it's just one of those movies where everything just sits right. This is quite an old horror movie now, and it still stood the test of time. I don't know how many movies we can truly say this about and mean it. I think it just never gets boring on a really watches. And I hope that younger people that are being first introduced, I hope that they can get something out of this too, because it's, it's just so much fun. And I think I like it because it balances that, that comedy and horror so well. You know, as, as it says on the back of this one, one minute you're laughing, the next minute you're shrieking in terror at what's in front of you. And I think the character of David is so likable that you do have that empathy towards him. You feel kind of bad for him that he's going through this horrific experience. And because he's not an all-out villain at all, he's a really genuinely nice guy who's just a bit aloof and a bit, you know, he's just just young, just somebody just being young and having no responsibilities and then suddenly this horrible curse has been cast upon him through no fault of his own. So as I say, even though they have that one brief misogynistic discussion, I suppose it's trying to be like, oh, boys will be boys. I guess that's how they were trying to convey it. But I think he is quite a likeable character. And then you see the romance develop with Jenny Agatha's character as well. And you're kind of rooting for them. And you know that this romance is going to be brief and end under tragic circumstances. And it's kind of sad because they're so good together. They have great chemistry and so you're rooting for them. But this is the kind of horror film where it builds up the likability of the characters only to pull the rug from under the audience and be like, yeah, this is not going to end in the Disney fashion of um, happy endings. 
yeah, you kind of think, are they going to do something at the end? Are they going to pull something out of the fire where it does end happily? But considering the rest of the movie, you kind of know where the trajectory's heading and it doesn't end well. And for a certain VHS era of audience, I think there's a section of society who will always be holding a candle for Jenny Agatha in this movie. There are so many people that I know who have seen American Werewolf in London, specifically male people who just remember Jenny Agatha, specifically from this movie. And I don't blame them at all. She's unbelievably gorgeous in this movie. Just the sort of wholesome English rose that you would quite happily start a relationship with. Even this time I was thinking, well, you know, this time, you know, maybe I've got over Jenny Agatha in this movie. No, I haven't got over Jenny Agatha in this movie. Weirdly, here's a story that kind of sets out fun and ends up quite creepy. I was uh-huh. listening to John Landis doing a talk a few years ago, and he was on the subject of this movie, and it came to do the shower scene with Jenny Agatha, and on the morning of the shower scene, they noticed that on the call sheet... They seem to have five or six more boom operators than they would normally get. So basically, you'd got people who realised that there'd be Jenny Agatha in a shower and had kind of got themselves onto the crew to have a bit of an ogle. That's a very 80s thing. It's quite unpleasant. I didn't find it as funny as the rest of the audience. There you go. That's how things were in the 80s. Jenny Agatha was a trooper and apparently she's just wasn't bothered about it, it was just part of the acting gig. But when you've got leering pervs deciding that they want to be a boom operator for the day, it's just so they can have a quick glimpse of Jenny Agatha in the shower, it's like, yeah, not to dwell on that kind of unpleasantness for too long. She's great in this movie because she's the perfect heroine for this because she kind of falls for David in a very sort of movie way. Because she doesn't really know much about him, but she falls for him while he basically is unconscious. She just thinks he looks quite nice. I guess you've got to get them together some way in this movie. And this movie doesn't have time to develop huge romantic subplots. But you're right, it's doomed from the start, this romance. Even though it's quite sweet and you see them together a bit, you know where this is going to end up. One of the strange things is that Roger Ebert reviewed it, gave it two out of four, said it was okay but basically said it didn't have an ending. It really does have an ending. It may not have the ending you want it to. It may not have that kind of couple of minutes to decompress at the end after the climax of the movie. But you get a very, very specific point at which the movie finishes and then fade to black credits. Now, it's a bit of a downer, but it's still an ending. And... For them to say, like, no, it doesn't really have an ending. It it, it does. It's abrupt, but it clearly ends. There's no going back from where this movie gets to. Yeah, where would we go from him getting shot? I love the abruptness of the ending. I think it's one of the things that's always stood out to me about this film, that it just had the balls to go there, kill off your main character, end on a downer, and just go straight into a rendition of, Blue Moon by the Marcells in a kind of upbeat way. And again, encompasses the whole film because it is a horror comedy. And one minute it's 
making you terrified of what's going on and that you know it's a bit sad at the end because this love story has come to an abrupt end and our hero is met his untimely fate but then on the brighter side all the undead can go to heaven or whatever they need to do i think that's how the ending just encapsulates the whole movie the whole tone of the movie in, in that few seconds and i think it's pretty excellent and talking of the ending it's worth sitting through the credits for this one it's very much a historical artifact in some ways because on the credits, and I will quote you, the end credits state that Lycanthrope Films Limited wishes to extend its heartfelt congratulations to Lady Diana Spencer and His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales on the occasion of their marriage, July 29th, 1981. And I think that was kind of a thinly veiled apology for the fact that there are some obscenities said about our now king in this film. And I think Again, that line isn't really cool, not because it's directed at the king, but the homophobic slur that is used to describe him, I think that's very much outdated as well. So there's a couple of things in it that, as I say, they don't sit well with today's audiences, but we can slightly overlook it because I don't think it was meant in any sort of poor taste or harm was intended with it. Also, what you do get, you get a glimpse into early 80s British culture because at one point, David is watching the TV. So he's clearly watching it in the afternoon. So he goes to BBC One, he's got the test card, goes over to BBC Two, there's the darts on. So he watches a bit of a darts match. And then he goes to ITV when we only had three channels in the UK. ITV is showing a salacious news of the world ad where somebody is about to reveal all which is a really nice snapshot of British TV in the 80s. Also, the porno movie, the fake porno movie in American Werewolf in London, where David is trying to make sense of what's happening to him. He's clearly killed a lot of people and he sees Jack outside this porno movie cinema and Jack's beckoning him inside and they sit at the back of this porno cinema and Jack is explaining to him that he does need to kill himself before introducing all the people that he's killed so far. The porno movie that is playing in the cinema called See You Next Wednesday is absolute genius. It's such a fun movie. It just encompasses terrible movie making. The stuff that's going on screen is utterly ridiculous. And it's all these semi-naked or naked people spouting terrible dialogue and every time it flicks back to the movie i mean i kind of want to see see you next wednesday because it's so bad can we see more of see you next wednesday in this scene because i'm sure we can't but even the stuff that's happening in the background there's care taken to actually get it spot on and it just encompasses really badly made cheap british late 70s early 80s smut and it is absolutely bang on. And every time it flicked back to the movie, I was in bits, basically. Which is good, because the stuff that's going on in the cinema is actually quite grim. Because you've got Jack, who is very much decomposed now. He's basically a skull with bits dripping off and sort of the eyes poking out. And he's just introducing a lot of torn-up people to David, who are all suggesting various ways that he might want to kill himself. Oh yeah, it's black humour at its best. That sequence of See You Next Wednesday, that was the first sequence they shot for the entire movie, so they filmed that before anything else. 
then the rest of the movie was actually shot in sequence, which is very rare, but that was down to getting all the makeup effects, not to benefit the actors anyway, even though I'm sure having that consistency with following the script scene by scene was quite a helpful experience. But yeah, it was to basically make sure they could get all the makeup effects right. And it makes sense because especially when you've got Jack's character who's decomposing and looking terrible the more times you see him to get to that point i think it makes more sense because if they were going to film it out of sequence and you'd have to have all this different makeup applied at different times and have the worst makeup done first and then the beginning makeup you have done you know it just i think that it was quite a smart way of making this movie in complete order yeah definitely also one pound fifty for a taxi ride never gonna happen these days you would get in the taxi and then you would get straight out again if you were paying £1.50 for a taxi, that was a stunning revelation for me. Somebody gets out of a taxi and the guy goes, oh, £1.50. I was like, excuse me, what? Did, did, they, did they just say £1.50? Good grief. Things were cheap back then. Even the shopping, there's a, a sequence once David has been discharged from hospital and uh, David and Alex are in the supermarket and, yeah, everything's coming up as, like, £2 or whatever. It's like, can you imagine if that's how cheap things were now? Just what a life. What a different life. This movie has so many great set pieces in it. It's just every sequence will bring a smile to your face. And one of the funniest, most farcical moments in this is, of course, the London Zoo scene. David wakes up in a pen with actual wolves. And apparently when filming this, he was told, don't worry, they've been fed. So that was the only reassurance he had while he was stood there naked amongst these actual wolves. They filmed that scene as well while the zoo was actually open, so members of the public did appear as extras in this. You just can't not help but laugh at the whole balloon boy where he's like hiding in a bush and asking this child to come up to him with the balloons, and I think that's very much public information film style of acting with that. (laughs) Yeah, also the woman that he approaches as well, they told her that a man was going to approach her with a line of dialogue, what they neglected to tell her was that David Norton would be naked when he came up to her. Oh my gosh. So yeah, they captured a genuine reaction there. I think it's great. I think it's good that it blends reality with the fiction because I think that makes some more genuinely funny moments. And I think um, John Landis did allow for a lot of improvisation in this film as well. I, like I've read that the conversations at the start of the movie between David and Jack Some of those were just completely improvised by the actors themselves and he really enjoyed what they came up with, so he thought he'd leave it that in. So, I mean, I like movies that do go off script a bit because you've got these really special moments that you wouldn't necessarily have if you didn't let the actors flourish. Yeah, absolutely. Also, every time I go in Tottenham Court Road tube station, when I'm in London, I always think American Werewolf in London. I haven't been chased through Tottenham Court Road Tube Station by a werewolf yet. There's still time. It's just got all these great bits of London. It's very much a a travelogue. So there's bits in the background. There's Trafalgar Square in the background at one point. There's a big sequence at the end in Piccadilly Circus where everything just goes completely berserk. The shit hits the fan. There's cars crashing. There's people getting knocked through windows. There's people getting crushed. There's stuff on fire. There's werewolf transformations. There's policemen getting savaged. It really does pay off at the end. And it kind of builds to this point where you think, well, where's this going to go? It's just mental, the last 10 minutes of this movie. 
and it needs to be because it's been building up and building up and building up and it also puts you in the mood that David is completely out of control now that he is just attacking people at will even the bit at the end where it's foreshadowed that somebody he loves will be his downfall he is possibly going to just tear her to pieces even though she says she loves him he does start to go for her before he gets shot so even there it's quite dark that he doesn't let Jenny Agatha's character off the hook. He's probably going to kill her at the end. It's not just a kind of a love will conquer all, he'll see her, he won't want to attack her, something else will kill him. No, there's clearly something there that even though he recognises that it's her, he's still going to kill her. It fits in with the kind of darkly humorous and quite horrific nature of the movie. I think the end of this really stands up as well because you kind of think, it's a big action sequence. It's early 80s. It'll be really clunky. No, it's really, really well edited. And it's really chaotic. But you can tell everything that's going off. You see some action movies where it's like, where the hell's this person? Why is that there? This doesn't match. This is really, really tightly edited. It's a really good horror sequence, but it's also a really good action sequence as well. Absolutely. I think there are some quite brief but horrific moments in that sequence. I mean, you, you see somebody get run over by a car and you hear it at the sound effects. It really does get under the skin with that one. John Landis has a cameo in that scene as well as he um, crashes through a window. Make sure you look out for that when you're re-watching it if you haven't noticed it already, which you probably have if you're a fan of horror. So I'm trying to toe the line here between talking to horror fans and people that uh, might have come here just out of curiosity that are thinking of checking out some horror we are the Any Movie, Any Genre podcast. I think this really holds up well. I hadn't seen it for a while. It's a movie that I've seen over the years quite a number of times, and it's been on TV quite a lot. And so I think I'd given it a chance to breathe. It's probably a couple of years since I've seen American Werewolf before I came to view it for the podcast. And I think... It's still one of the classics. It's a really good movie. It's really well written. The performances are all great. It's got enough gore to satisfy the horror crowd. If you're a little bit squeamish, you might want to cover your eyes occasionally, but it's got enough heart and it's got enough humour to play better to people who are usually not fans of this sort of stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it's completely tongue-in-cheek. There are odd moments where it is. It does play it fairly straight but the laughs come out of the situations as well you do get that ridiculous sequence in the zoo which after all the carnage of the previous few sequences it gives you a chance to calm down a little bit you can breathe out he's just messing about in the zoo and it just plays it for laughs and i think you need that kind of release every so often it'd be too intense otherwise if the second half of the movie would be just him attacking people all the time it wouldn't play to its strengths so it does enough of the horror stuff, but without sacrificing some of the fun in the movie as well. And, of course, Jenny Agatha as well. No matter how many people will talk about American Werewolf in London, there's always going to be a point in the conversation at which Jenny Agatha will be mentioned. Even now, I bet she's just fed up of people coming to talk to her about American Werewolf in London, because I bet, I bet it happens on a regular basis even now. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, like you, I had some breathing space from this movie. 
the last time I believe I saw it that I can recall was on the big screen at Dominic Brunt's Leeds Horror Festival quite a number of years ago now. I've also seen it on the big screen at the Abattoir Horror Festival a couple of decades ago. <laughs> so I've had the opportunity to see this in the cinema, which has been awesome. I definitely would see it again. But it is that feel-good horror movie that you can just pop on, I think. I think if you're just wanting something a bit easy to watch. And as you say, I think the reason this would have appeal to non-horror fans is because the characters are so endearing. And I think that's so important in horror. So much of it can be throwaway. And as I'm getting older, I just find that I need something with a really good story and characters I can invest in rather than just people getting hacked and slashed. I'll get bored with that. I mean, sometimes you can look at it and think, oh, that's some great makeup effects, whatever, but it's got to have some heart to it. And I think that's what, makes this true horror because you've just got this tragedy at its core and that's what really makes this film so appealing because you really do care about what's happening in it it's got visceral body horror it's got pitch black humor fantastic casting characters fantastic soundtrack as well and so cleverly curated the fact that they've got songs with moon titled in each of them so you've got three renditions of blue moon You've got Bad Moon Rising, and every time I hear that song, I, I see the movie in my head. Also, Moon Dance, like, I see that shower scene in my head <laughs> every time. And fun fact, I did get the opportunity to meet David Norton in person at Horrorcon in Sheffield a good few years ago. He was absolutely lovely. He was a bit stunned at the age I was when I saw the movie and that my mum had introduced me to it. And I thought about it after. Maybe he was thinking, because he was naked, like 50% of this film, that he was like, okay, maybe teenagers shouldn't be watching this. But I have so much appreciation for this film. And I say it holds up as one of my favourite horror movies of all time. And I was thinking about it because, as I've expressed so openly my whole life, the Scream franchise, they are my favourite horror films. And I think... It was almost potentially inspired by American Werewolf because, again, this is one that goes hand in hand with having the self-awareness, the humour, as well as the bloody horror and well-written characters. So I think that's probably why those two movies have such a, a special place in my heart. Obviously, this was a staple of the VHS era. You couldn't go in a video shop without them having a copy of American Werewolf in London. And I do remember the polygram video cover it was the facial transformation big shot of that on the front cover if you're going to be in a video shop even if you hadn't heard of the movie you'd take one look at that you'd think oh, i gotta rent that that looks great yeah obviously i'm a child of the vhs era and this was one of the major titles it was talk of the schoolyard basically if you haven't seen american werewolf in london and you hadn't seen the evil dead then there was no point talking to you because you just weren't cool. They were the two key titles that you had to see. None of us were anywhere near old enough to be watching this stuff. It doesn't appear to have done me any harm, so I think I'm all right. Yes, likewise. Definitely, it's a rite of passage film, I think, for anybody transitioning into horror or established horror fans. It's that, it's that movie that will have potentially got you into horror in general. It just has that iconicness about it and I do recall that image of the transformation on the video cover seeing that my whole life before I even started watching horror films that's always been imprinted on my brain so yeah I definitely remember that and as I'm one of the lucky people that has the 2019 Arrow Video Limited Edition copy Graham Humphreys's artwork is stunning on this copy he has just captured everything about this film as he always does with every movie but 
there is actually an image shot by shot of David transforming into the wolf and it, it's just beautiful. So with no surprises, it has a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb and on Rotten Tomatoes, it's an 89% tomato meter and an 85% audience score. Obviously, Werewolf is very highly regarded. I would have given it a higher score than that. I mean, would I have given it 100%? Possibly, maybe 99 just to knock out that misogyny and the homophobic slur. Other than that, this is a perfect movie in my eyes. And I feel I'm allowed to say that because I've loved this movie for so long. It's been part of my life for for like ever, really. And getting to meet David Norton, that was the icing on the cake as well. So he was so lovely and he's great with fans and he has so many interesting stories to tell. So if you get to see him at a convention, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, he did come across as a very nice guy, I have to say. The score's pretty good. Considering it's a 40-odd-year-old movie now, then the Ron Tomato scores are pretty impressive because I'm sure that there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of reviews about it. So to keep it at that level shows how beloved the movie is and how it touched the nerve at the time, but also continues to be a title that people will go back to and people will be introduced to and still have the same amount of love for as all the way back in 1981 and all the way back to those shelves in the video store when everybody was queuing up to get a copy of it. I had a really great time watching this movie again. You're right, it's weird to have a comfort horror movie because if it's a horror movie, how can you have a feel-good horror movie? I think this is pretty much as close as you're going to get to a feel-good one because you do get to spend time with the characters again. There's something familiar about it, even the gory bits. There's something weirdly comforting about this movie, even the stuff at the end where it just goes apeshit. It brings that feeling of nostalgia back, basically, to watching it the first time. And I don't think you can replace watching this movie the first time because I was like, holy shit, when I watched this movie the first time. But you do get a little sense of that and it does remind you of how you felt when you first popped it into the VHS player. So I've got very few bad words to say about this movie. Yes, there's a homophobic line in it which doesn't really sit well today there is a little bit of misogyny at the start as you say it's like two lads who are just making their way in the world and they're cocky and they're about to be brought down in the most extreme way possible as always i'm not going to forgive it because it's troublesome but considering when it was made and considering the very tiny bit of troublesome material in this movie then i think you've got to put it all into context because if we're going to wipe the slate clean of all movies with troublesome content in, that is a very dangerous road to be going down. You don't have to enjoy that particular line in this movie. I didn't. But you've got to take this movie as a whole as well. And the rest of the movie is, well, I'm going to say delightful. It's weird to call a horror movie delightful, but it is. It's really, really, really good, this movie. And if you haven't seen it, where have you been? and go see it. Absolutely, and I think it's very important that we do address troublesome content in movies because we're not going to shy away from it, we're not going to avoid it, we're not going to feel awkward about it, we're just going to say it. So if you're here for that, we're here for you. Just want to touch on as well, 
There is a sequel to this film that was released in 1997, An American Werewolf in Paris. I have never seen it. I have never had any interest in seeing it, only because this movie is so sacred to me that I've just never had the temptation to see it. I'm a little bit tempted now. I'm quite curious about it, but I, I just haven't heard good things. And it's not really anything to do with the original. I don't think many, if anyone, from the original worked on it. So, I am going to say that An American Werewolf in Paris is a film with actors. <laughs> that's, that's all you need to know. I mean, whether I could watch it and dissociate it from An American Werewolf in London, I did watch the trailer for it and it just looked like it was just that typical 90s teen movie style it didn't feel in the same vein as American Wealth in London at all so it wasn't something that made me think oh I really want to see this now a little bit interested but I don't think it's going to be on the top of my to watch list and we are not going to be covering it in our werewolf month at all so sorry to disappoint if you were hoping that we were going to talk about it I don't think anybody will be disappointed that we're not covering American Werewolf in Paris. I bet even the people who are in it will not be disappointed. And with that said, thank you all for listening to our first episode on werewolves. It's Halloween now. We are just going to get into all this spooky content. So I hope you're there for it with us. And remember, beware the moon. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 112 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to keep up to date with our content, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, X and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. So for the next episode, we are continuing with our wolf theme, but we're heading away from the UK and we're heading to Los Angeles. 2005 Los Angeles, as a matter of fact. We're taking a look at Wes Craven's Cursed. Very excited to revisit this one. Only ever seen it once, so it's going to be like a clean slate going into this, but I'm very much aware this is not the movie that it should have been. So stay tuned for next week where we get into the nitty-gritty of that. Until then, stay safe, everybody. Beware the moon, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.